0: I think we're having church. That felt like church. (laughs) That was amazing. Amazing. I want to just say a few things um, before we get into our text this morning. Uh, First, I want to thank my man, Mark Burton, for getting out with a plow this morning and smoothing out our driveway. We have a little bit of a miscommunication with our plowing company. That happens from time to time. And of course, the melting, freezing thing changing every 10 minutes as it does in Maine. Uh, and Mark's come to help us. So I'm sorry if your walk across the parking lot was a little treacherous this morning, but it would have been worse had he not come to the rescue. So thank you, Mark, for that. Um, yes? Yeah, I wouldn't do it too long, though. He's a real glory hog. He loves all the attention. Just kidding. He's the exact opposite. And thank you for uh, those of you that, that expressed that you actually missed me last week. So nice to be missed. It was great. I, uh, had a, to answer some people's questions. Most of you probably don't care. But that's okay. Uh, but, but many of you asked, how was Florida? How is it? it? was amazing. It was everything that we would expect from Florida this time of year and stuff. I got my negative test coming back, so I could be here. I was kinda thinking maybe I get one more Sunday off, but that's one reason to get the Rona, but no, didn't happen. Oh well. But uh, what an incredible time, and just even encouraging to be in another church and to see, you know, other ministries thriving and growing and, and those kinds of things. And I go kind of as a student just watching how churches do their ministry and that kind of thing. It's it's an occupational hazard, if you will, when you go into those environments. You can't just be an attendee. You're kind of watching how things are done and just very encouraged to see that the gospel is being preached really everywhere, you know, that the, the church is not diminished, it's not losing its strength or steam. I think that what we've been through over the last year plus has only strengthened the testimony and the conviction of the gospel, and so it's really neat to see that on display. And yes, I'm happy to be back. I did miss the church, though, especially in moments like we just had this morning. I did miss being with you guys, but I brought a little bit of warm weather. On the day I came back, it was 40-something here, so I'll take a little credit for that. But, And I want to just, any little opportunity I get to just highlight some people that are very important, I try to do that when I think of it. I'm not thinking about all the things in my life. Um, but the staff here at faith is just, they're so capable and so consistent and they've been doing what they've been doing for a long time and stuff. And so when I go away and I know pastor Bill could have said the same thing too. When, when, when you go away, you don't think at all, about I got to check in or I got to look at email or any of those kinds of things because it's being handled. And the things that can't be handled in your absence, they know how to make it wait and uh, and attend to these matters and stuff. So it's really incredible to be blessed that way and to really be away, you know, to be mentally away. So I appreciate them for that. But in particular, I mean, who's this youth pastor? I mean, my goodness. I So I'll just give you an illustration. What goes through my head every time. So Pastor Gary preached for us last week. In full disclosure, he's my brother-in-law, which makes me tempted to say the opposite of what I'm about to tell you. So don't think he's just saying that because they're related. It's the relation that wants me to treat him differently. But just to give you an illustration, I remember years ago on the worship team, um, Gus, who's our you know worship leader and the guitar player here in the middle, if you don't know. It's really great to be able to introduce you to our church because we see so many new faces lately. That it's like, oh, I can't wait for you to hear this song. We've known it for 10 years, but you get to hear it for the first time or you get to know who we are and that kind of thing. So it's exciting. I feel like we're introducing this church to so many new people lately. But I remember on the worship team, uh, years ago, Doug was playing the keyboard over here and Gus was playing the guitar and before we got started, it was practice and stuff. And they were both going nuts. Like, you know, Doug's doing crazy, crazy things on the piano. I didn't even know it could be done. And Gus is matching it on the guitar and you could see smoke coming from their instruments. They were just burning it up. And and they were going back and forth and I remember Gus had this statement. He goes, Doug, cut it out. You're going to have to, you're going to make me have to practice soon. That's how I feel when Pastor Gary helps me out and fills in in the pulpit. I'm like, cut it out because you're going to make me have to practice. If you keep pushing me like this and you keep showing up, there's no like, you know, uh, it's just a, a really healthy but intimidating form of competition. So thank you, Pastor Gary, for doing such an admirable job last week. But more than that, anyway, long, long way around to a compliment, huh? Now you, now you guys know what it's like being in like in the counseling office with me, all my metaphors going forever, and everyone's just like, "Just tell me what you need me to do, shut up already." <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I did miss being here, and um, looking forward to getting into uh, the Word of God. And that video and recap from Sandy about night to shine is just absolutely amazing and incredible and and the little things that go into making that night special is what kills me because even just when I saw um, on somebody's window that the words you know God bless you or something like that the letters were written backwards so that the uh, who thinks of this you know it comes from love and people are just thinking like what can we do to 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 make that person feel loved and special. It wasn't to show the rest of the world, hey, look what we do. It was about the individual. It was about the participants in that car, and it's just amazing. So anyway, okay, into the text. <laughs> Whew. All right, John chapter 3. I want to ask you a simple question. Do you remember the day you were born? Anybody? Is really like, you know, most important day in your life, pretty much, right? All the other important events that came later, some people say, well, my most important day was my, me- my marriage or something, my wedding day or something. Those wouldn't have come had that day not occurred. But yet you don't remember it, do you? You know you were there because people maybe took the photos or explained the experiences in the small household. We've been through this a bunch of times. Been in the delivery room so many times I feel like I should have an honorary degree so I could, you know, get paid for this kind of thing. Although the amazing thing is, as many times as I've been in the delivery room, I don't remember the details. I kind of remember it gradually getting a little bit easier to kind of man up and, and be there for Chris and all that kind of stuff. Like you you come to know what to expect, the the knees wobble a little less each time and stuff, but it still never fully went away. But I'm amazed at how much my wife remembers almost all the details. And she was really, you know, clued in on she didn't want to be overly medicated. She didn't want to miss anything. I'll tell you how weird she is. Because a lot of people have said, how could you do that to that poor woman having nine children? I'm like, I was an innocent bystander. I, it was not my idea. And she'll tell you this. I wanted two in my head. I said, if I say two, she'll talk me into three. That's as far as I wanted to go. But she just was, you know, she could handle delivery and all the child rearing, the babysitter, all this, like every time she wanted another one, I felt really like a jerk for saying no. So she really knew how to play these strings well, right? Well, with our third child, she's in delivery and this is, this is the week of nine eleven. So, you know, everyone's mind is on the, um, the twin towers and everything going on there. And in the delivery room, three days after, so this is on the 14th, we're in the delivery room, and in between contractions, you know, the TV's in the, sc- on, on, in the corner, and it's on, and we're all sort of like, yeah, are you, you feeling okay? Yeah, okay, what's, what's happening next, you know? And, and, and she was in the middle of contractions, and she would be like, hold on a second, and then, okay, what did I miss? And she wanted to be caught up on the news. And so I'm like, "Who? Di-? she's a machine. She just can do this, you know. And so so she remembers all of these details. And it takes these really significant events for me to kind of clue in and go, oh, okay, I remember when we felt this way or this was happening or something. It's not something that we, as, as participants in the event of being birth, we're going to remember. But yet it's an, an extremely critical time in our life, obviously. How about your second birth? How about when you, you came into a new kingdom because you've encountered the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that maybe somebody delivered this message of gospel hope to you that though, though you know you're dead in your trespasses and sins, that there is hope that there is a Savior who has come to lay his life down and to pay for those sins and to give you new life. Do you remember that time? Maybe you remember the details around that a little bit more clearly. You might not be able to recall the exact date. I can't. I know I was about nine years old and I was in a basement church. We had only been going a few times and my mom was the only believer in the family. My father and my sister and I didn't really know much about the gospel. And at nine years old, you know, I didn't really know that I even needed rescuing. And so uh, it was a Wednesday night. We're in this basement church who happened to be, uh, this church was started in my wife's cousin's house. So our connection goes way back then, even though I didn't know her. I was growing up around her family and stuff. And um, these are all for free. I'm just throwing them out there for you. And, uh, and, and I remember it being a Wednesday night and the preacher was up there giving, you know, a, a lesson. And at the end, as he normally would do, would do what we would call in the Baptist church, you know, an altar call and a, and an invitation. And so I remember, you know, my family having this little whisper huddle, is this the time Are you ready for the, Do you want to, you know, and my parents were just like, come on, we're going up front and getting saved. They were just like, you know, do you want to, do you hear what he's saying? Is it making sense? And for some reason at nine years old, it did. And I don't mean to make it sound like our children are. I mean, Jesus says that in order to be kingdom-minded, we have to have the mind of a child because we, as children, we believe almost anything we're told. And Jesus is like, that's the faith that I want to see from you. And so there was something that made a lot of sense to me, although I didn't really have this history. I didn't have this thing I felt like I needed to be rescued or saved from. But I can tell you that something changed. Even at nine years old, as we went forward and, and prayed a prayer of salvation to receive Jesus into our life and to, and to, and to make him king, I've told you guys before that even my, my girlfriend in the third grade playground dumped me. Cause I thought I was like the next John the Baptist or something. She's like, you've changed. You know, whatever a ten year old says at that point, right? And I was like, what? I'm yelling across the field, what? I'm a Christian. Why is that wrong? You know. Turned into this Bible nerd or something. Something changed. Something was different. It was like the Lord made it clear this was going to be a new life. I remember some of the aspects of that second birth. I don't really remember all the details. But I would guess you do too. I would guess that you had your own experience that came to you in a very unique way. That you heard the message of the gospel in the way that met where you were in your life. Sometimes we hear those testimonies and those stories. Sometimes they come in very dramatic moments, very rock-bottom circumstances in our life, but not always. For some people, it's this progression of thought that it's like you almost get a little closer to the fire. You get a little bit more warmed up, and you're saying it's making a little bit more sense. I'm not quite all the way there yet. But at some point, all of us enter into this point of surrender where we say, enough of me, I need him. This is our text this morning. This is the beginning of that process for a man named Nicodemus. And and we know because I'm a broken record on this that the purpose of what the apostle John is writing for us here is so that as we as we saw in uh, John 20:31 that he wrote these things so that we would believe in the name of Jesus and that when we believe on him we will have life and we'll have life everlasting. By believing in his name, the name that we just sang. But we have to be determined to understand what it means to believe in Jesus. Because we see a lot of different forms of it. And we see some of it showing up in the scriptures. And we go, is this really the right kind of belief? Is this enough? Is it enough for us just to simply say, I believe in Jesus? I don't think it is. What does it really mean to believe? If I were putting that word out for you, it would be all in caps. Is, just this, is this just a mental ascent? Well, I believe that Jesus existed. I'll give you that. I'll even give you the fact that I think that he was really good at what he did or he was really sincere in his helping of the poor and living his life and, and laying his life down even to the extent that he thought that it would do you some good. I believe all of that. I have no problem believing that Jesus is, was a historical figure or that he was sincere. He wasn't a manipulator or any of that. And sometimes we think, hmm, maybe this person's a Christian. Maybe, maybe they really get it. I think we're going to see through this story of Nicodemus that there's various forms of what you and I would call belief. But there's one form of belief that Jesus would refer to. It goes beyond mere interest. It goes beyond mere acknowledgement that God might be real. And that's difficult for us in our culture because it's so often if we just hear somebody sounds like they're on our side, we're thinking, all right, got another one. Or at least I don't have to do battle with them. And certainly I'm not encouraging that we're doing battle with anybody. But before we get to John chapter 3, I just want to give us a few verses from the preceding chapter that are setting up our time here. Because you know the chapter breaks in the Bible are not what the original authors put in. That this was through translation and And people, uh, rightly so, looking to help us find our place in the scripture better and to communicate flow of thought. But every once in a while, some of those chapter breaks aren't as helpful to us as we think they are. And I think this is one of those instances. In verse 23 of John chapter 2, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. So our first clue is they believed in what they could see. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That seems a little bit harsh. It seems a little bit distant. Why? Because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, or he didn't need anybody to tell him what was in the heart of man, for he himself knew what was in man. The the belief that is coming out of this crowd is one that's kind of like applause. I can't believe he just did that. It's amazing. You believe in an aspect. He was able to do something. So I believe in the fact that he must be more than what we expected. But this is weird, weird kind of phrasing. It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It could be worded, they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Let me say it a little bit differently. He didn't believe in their belief. He knew crowds are easy, easily manipulated. They're looking for the sensational. They want to be entertained. So if I'm doing these sorts of things, their immediate reaction isn't that impressive to me. Because I know what's in the heart of man. What's in the heart of man is they're going to follow me as long as the getting is good. And when it gets tough, they're going to fall away. And of course, we know that's what happened in the scriptures. Even James chapter 2 tells us, you believe that God is one. You do well. Congratulations. You believe that God is real, that he is a triune Godhead. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Good job. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, Mental assent or knowing something to be true isn't the same as belief, according to the scriptures. So I think there's a connection between what we just saw at the end of chapter 2, which was Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, which was this uh, lightweight sort of uh, blow by the wind kind of belief to the man that was about to step onto the scene in chapter 3. I think we're going to find Nicodemus to be quite relatable. His status and his stature and everything like that, maybe not so much. He was very important, as we'll see. But in terms of what he almost gets right and in terms of what he gets wrong, I think we're going to see some similarities to who we are as people. And I say this not so that we walk out of here going, oh, nothing but a Nicodemus, but so that we can find the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved him despite these shortcomings. So let's look at some of these things point by point as we walk through our text, the first eight verses of John chapter three. First thing, first similarity, I guess I'd say, I want us to see in Nicodemus and in this text is that we undervalue the worth of Jesus all the time. Let's see how it says it here in verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we are getting the background. We're getting the scene set for us here of who this man Nicodemus is when he comes to Jesus and what he's attempting to to converse with Jesus about Nicodemus is a Pharisee. We've encountered the Pharisees already in the gospel of John. We know that there's thousands of them and they're the very conservative branch of Judaism. They're the ones that are adhering tightly to the things of the scriptures and they're making sure you do as well. And like I said, there's thousands of them that are, are, are tasked with, if you will, policing the religious practice of those that claim to follow the one true God. And, uh, this, this, this group, it's interesting a little bit how they, how they form because we have these silent periods in the scriptures. We have the end of the Old Testament, then we have, I keep, I keep forgetting I'm talking to you this way, then you have a span of 400 years of silence where God is not speaking through the prophets, He's not tearing open the clouds and speaking to mankind directly. For 400 years, He goes silent. Until the prophecy that Jesus will be born and that as the ministry of of the Lord is starting and things. And so in those 400 years, you have a group of people who sought to separate themselves, to, to do what the scriptures referred to as being holy. I want to remove myself from all that culture is doing. I want myself to be set apart for the cause of the Lord. I want to adhere to the scriptures and his, and his teachings and his commandments and I want to do so in such a way that I'm an example to others. Phariseeism started from a very beautiful place. And then the development of the, of the oral tradition or the Mishnah was, 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 was coming into focus and so the, the things that they were doing, this is what we do as people. We take what God said, this is what pleases me, this is what you do, this is how you live purely before me, and we say, I think we can improve it. I think we can clarify it a little bit. I think we can we can get the rules a little bit tighter and everything. God gave us a little too much wiggle room, and so this oral tradition comes along, and it starts piling on all the expectations of what people are supposed to do in order to be pleasing to God. And the Pharisees became experts at this, and they had a lot of time to develop it. And this is who Nicodemus is. He's, he's one of them. He's one of the thousands that represent many more. But even Nicodemus has a greater stature or status than that. This text tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews, which means he belongs. He's one of 70 that would be referred to as the Sanhedrin. And they're the ones that are keeping all the other ones in line. So in order for us to understand what's going on, if you took the Senate and the Supreme Court, And roughly kind of merge them together and then you have that person jesus is even going to refer to nicodemus in verse 10 as the teacher of the jews so then you start thinking in terms of like uh the the senate majority leader or the chief justice of the supreme court or something this is the guy who's come by night to find jesus This is no slouch. This is no somebody who isn't just kind of warming up to the idea of what it means to be a follower of the Lord. He has dedicated his entire life to it, and his obsession is on doing it better and better and better. So when the text tells us that he came at night, I don't know about you. If you grew up learning some of the Bible stories and stuff, in in my day, growing up in Sunday school, it was all the flannel graph. Anybody remember flannel graph? If you're watching at home, do you want to do a hashtag flannel graph. Let me know that you're my people. We saw this all the time. We saw the little pictures and everything. And Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night was always a sign of intimidation, was always a sign of being ashamed or I can't ruin my reputation as one of the Sanhedrin, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I can't I can't risk that if they see me coming to Jesus. It's all gone. But that doesn't seem really consistent with several things. And I don't want to go into all the detail here, but keep in mind, they're already looking for the arrival of the Messiah. Remember we talked about that when we were introducing John the Baptist? That there's a uh there's a presence in their thought that maybe Messiah has come, maybe he's he could come any day, any time. And so there's an investigation afoot. And so if this guy is a leader of the leaders, it would be appropriate and proper for him to go do this investigation. It wouldn't be necessarily a risk of his reputation to go and ask a few questions. And this is what, is what seems to be happening. But also I think the reason why maybe a guy like him would come at night is because he's pretty busy. And there's this sort of like mutual leader to leader respect thing going on. Jesus is pretty busy during the day too. And I don't want to compete with the crowds that are starting to draw. I don't want to compete with what he's doing. I want some one-on-one time with this guy because I have some very sincere questions. I think this helps us paint Nicodemus's picture a little bit better when we see it in this light. But even the great ones among us, even the smart ones, even the most dedicated can get Jesus wrong. And we see this in what Nicodemus says. He says, Rabbi, which is a title of respect, teacher. No one could do what you're doing unless God is, keyword, with him. So even in the addressing from a completely respectful standpoint, Nicodemus is thinking God's just kind of descended on him like he's a prophet. And he's visiting him and touched him and anointed him in some special way. It isn't that you are God. It's that God is with him. And so, again, we start to understand, okay, this is what we do. We underestimate who Jesus is. The key point, if you're following along in your notes or if you've received them online or something, is this, is that Jesus is always better than our estimation of him. How many times have you come to want to know more about Jesus and he just blows your mind? Every time. This is, this is the limitation of us being finite creatures is that we come to the one true God and he's always God. People don't come to Jesus with pure motives and just walk away going, I was expecting more. Thought he'd be better. He just didn't. I don't really get what all the hype's about. When you come to him sincerely, when you come to him earnestly, not I wanted him to bail me out or I wanted him to dump buckets of money on me or something, and he doesn't do that. People walk away disappointed from Jesus all the time for those reasons. But when we come to him sincerely, Lord, how do I encounter you? How do I know you more? You don't walk away disappointed. We walk away going, I don't think I'm digging in enough. I don't, I, I've do not i only scratched the surface of who he is. And Nicodemus is going to find this out. And here's the spoiler alert alert, where all this is going, because we won't finish it today, is that Nicodemus, this message sticks with Nicodemus, and he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that uh, underscores his sincerity in this nighttime visit. But Nicodemus is demonstrating for us that even the wisest, the most astute the most educated can undervalue who Jesus really is. Let's continue in our text, pick up in verses three and four to see that just like Nicodemus, we ignore or we miss our greatest issue. The, the thing that's at the core of our problem. Jesus answered him. He says, truly, truly, which is a way of saying, I'm telling you, that this. You take this to the bank. If I'm repeating the word truly, it means this is the truth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus says, uh, how, so how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And again, I go back to my flannel graph days. And I imagine Nicodemus being a little dumb. And I think of him just going, I don't, that doesn't make sense. I, are you saying, I mean, is there a way to pull this off? I need to know this. What's, what happens with the Pharisees and with the tradition and everything, like there's an expression that they too use about being made anew, being born anew, but they meant it for them, not for us. We were born in the right lineage. We were born in the right family. We follow the right traditions. We have the one true God. So if you're a Gentile and you're on the outside and you want to come into our camp, you're going to be born anew. This wasn't a phrase that stumbled Nicodemus in the sense of, I've never heard this before. It's impossible. I'm however old Nicodemus was. Can't do that. It's physically impossible. Again, I'm going to speculate just a little bit here the more I look into this. A man of this pedigree, a man of this understanding, I I want to assume something here. I assume that each and every one of us have what theologians have called over the centuries a God-shaped hole in us. That we've been created to worship something. And when we don't find that in the one true God, that hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think Nicodemus might be saying something along the lines, you know, I've said that phrase a million times myself, and I'm not even sure I'm offering this being born anew. Because here I am, a a faithful keeper of these traditions, and I'm doing these things the best that I can, and yet I'm still coming to you. I'm still not sure where new life is. I say this phrase a lot. We we expect this this tradition that we're laying out and all this system to to generate this new life in people, but it seems to come short. How is it possible? Jesus, is this more than just a phrase? How can I believe this? Can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? I don't think he thinks that that's really what Jesus is saying as much as he's saying what are we talking about here? I have tried all attempts at finding new life and it just doesn't seem to work. We go back to where Nicodemus' obsession with pedigree comes from in John chapter one. Let's just look at a few verses as review. Beginning in verse 11, the apostle says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood. So there's that lineage, you know, that race and that all that sort of stuff, that isn't what saves you. It's not of your bloodline nor of the will of the flesh. I can muster enough faith and muster enough courage to follow God or something. That isn't how we become children of God, nor of the will of man, but it's simply an act of God, which is what Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus. But you see, he's got a limited understanding. Everything he knows is the flesh. Everything he knows is is the external. Everything he knows is the things that I can perform to make me feel like I'm being a good follower of God, that I'm holy. Jesus says, no, you've got to be born again, which in the Greek is saying born from above or born anew. Nicodemus is saying, well, show me. And the third point I want us to see in our text as we move forward is that we overthink the solution to our problem. Overthink in the sense of, so if I've got a deficiency, I must do all of these things in order to make up for that deficiency. But Jesus answers in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus comes to Jesus thinking that there's a rescue in the physical world. It's going to be the thing he can touch. He can feel, he can see, he can smell. And Jesus says, you're operating or you're looking for the wrong kingdom. But he gives us this weird phrase in here. He says, you're born of water and the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of study on this that, um, you're, you're going to be A little disappointed in my ability to summarize it for you all this morning. But I want to just address the the clearest, probably the closest to home error that we get in our evangelical circles. And that's this idea of, is Jesus teaching that the water itself that we are baptized into is the saving power of God. It's It's a phrase that they in their theology have given called baptismal regeneration. In other words, I am only saved, I am only a child of God as I enter into the waters of baptism. We here at Faith, we do baptism. Uh, We have for several years now celebrated baptism on our front lawn. We, We do it once a year at this point and all that sort of stuff. So what would that be saying about us if we said you're not a Christian until you enter into the waters of baptism? You'd think that we'd get a little more active with this. You'd think that Jesus would have been walking around with buckets or fire hoses or something and just spraying everybody down if that was really the magic in all of this. You guys remember, any of you, don't admit it, don't raise your hands because you're in public. But if you've seen the movie Nacho Libre, you know, it's this whole thing. It's a kind of a Catholic tradition sort of movie and stuff like that. It was totally goofy. Jack Black says to his friend, he goes, I'm concerned about your salvation and stuff. And so when the guy wasn't looking, he walks up behind him and dunks his head in a bucket of water. He baptizes him as though it wasn't his own will or anything and that's supposed to save him, you know? The act of getting your head wet. So is that what Jesus is talking about? Uh, we would also have a theological problem too with the thief on the cross. That's probably the most common place we go to to argue away this, this passage as, as there is a prisoner hanging next to Jesus in the crucifixion and he says, you know, would you look down favorably upon me, show me your grace? And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise and there's no baptism uh, water to be found. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's with much more study than I'm boiling down here. It's pretty easy to prove that the waters of baptism are what they are, which is a picture and a symbol of the salvation that is granted to us on the inside. It isn't the act, the outward act that will cleanse this. So I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. This might get a little bit clunky, but there's, there's there's an aspect of Jesus knowing his audience that I think is going on with this phrase. That's why it's tough for us sometimes when we take a verse of scripture out of the air to prove our point on something. There could be more going on, and often there is. Jesus is talking to a Sanhedrin member of the Pharisees. This guy knows his stuff. He knows the scriptures. Perhaps Jesus is pointing back to some prophecy given in the Old Testament, in particular in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, the the prophet recounts what the Lord had told him. He says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is the promise of the new covenant to come. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then we move to the next chapter because Ezekiel 37 helps us understand this is sort of Ezekiel 36. This is the promise of God. This is what I'm going to do to make you my people. And, And 37 becomes a vision of how this will Come about this is the famous vision of Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones and in verse in chapter 37 he says and he said to me son of man can these bones live this is a vision and and the prophet is being uh, in a conversation with with the Lord God and I answered oh Lord God you know and he said to me prophesy over these bones and say to them o dry bones hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God to these bones behold I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet An exceedingly great army. Jesus doesn't quote these passages. So we can't make the direct correlation that he's speaking to Nicodemus about the prophecy of, of dry bones or even the promise of the new covenant coming with the cleansing of water. But we've got a combination here going on that would no doubt trigger some thought process in Nicodemus. That you've got the water coming in to do what only the work of the Lord can do, and you've got the Spirit coming in only to do what, what to do what only the, the the work of the Lord can do. And so maybe some of this is starting to spin in Nicodemus' mind. It also was was a part of ancient dialogue to be able to look at birth as uh, uh, being born of the water, which has something to do with perhaps some of the biological things that happen in birth and those sorts of things. So all of this imagery and language is is not necessarily saying, well, sorry, Nicodemus, unless you go get in John the Baptist waters, you're not going to be saved. What he's saying is this is the promise that God has made all along. He was going to do this work. And the reason why you're missing the new birth is because you've been trying to do all the work yourself. Seeing Nicodemus's jaw drop after saying all this, he says in verse 7, don't marvel that I said to you you must be born again. Don't get hung up on this, he says. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is tough for a guy who's looked at everything in the physical. Yes, he believes in a spirit God. Yes, he believes that there is a a father, a lord God that you cannot see, but his exercise of that, his whole life has been bound up in the things that you can do to feel more connected to him. And it becomes this idea of all that I am able to produce for my for my salvation. Nick has a fixation with the physical. It's seen in his adherence to the law remember we talked about in the miracle of, at the at the wedding feast those six pots of outer cleansing ritualistic cleansing those are the kinds of things that drove their sense of holiness the effort that they could go in and then jesus comes at him with this lack of kind of concrete example this blowing of the wind and he's like oh that's a little too squishy for me i can't tell which direction it's coming from i don't know where it's going You see where faith comes in and where our human efforts fail and we can't produce the thing that we feel like we're longing for. And Jesus comes in and says, you are never going to be able to do this on your own. So the key point here as we look at this passage, this this piece right here is since the physical world has fallen, only new birth in the spiritual kingdom is able to fix us. And that's the part that Nicodemus is having a hard time wrapping his heart around. And Jesus is giving us a bit of a play on words here because the wind, the word for wind and the word for spirit, pneuma, it's where we get our, our phrase for pneumatic tools if you guys use air tools and stuff like that. It's the same word. Wind and spirit, it's the same thing. Jesus said they're, they're, they're both related, they're both linked Somebody said when commenting on this passage, they said, the wind is capable of changing places, kind of like tornadoes and hurricanes can. They, they can change the physical landscape, but the spirit changes the person. So what are we saying here this morning? I believe as we look at just a, half of this text that's dealing with Nicodemus, and we'll see uh, good old Nick come up in a few other instances as we get even further down in this gospel account throughout the rest of this year, Lord willing. As I think what we're starting to see is some similarities on how we approach Jesus and how far we have to come in our understanding of trusting that he's the one doing the work that we can't do. It begins by, I believe, acknowledging the areas that we undervalue the worth of Jesus. Have we limited his grace? Have we talked ourselves out of being recipients of that grace? Because there's just no way he could forgive me because I know who I am. Or there's no way I could forgive that person because of what they've done to me. Do we limit the grace of Jesus? Do we undervalue him that way? Do we limit his wisdom? Well, he knew it was good for us a couple thousand years ago, but I mean, the landscape's changed today. Do we undervalue his care? Is he really capable of taking care of me? No one's seen hide or hair of him for 2,000 years. Can he really look after me? in some of my greatest losses or biggest fears... Have I underestimated his mercy and how he is not looking to just display all kinds of wrath on my life the moment I mess up? Wrath was displayed. God is still a God of wrath, but that wrath was placed on his son, Jesus Christ. An obsession with our physical life, all the things that we can put our hands on, all the accolades we can get or the direct affirmation we get from other human beings about us doing a good job or them liking us or any of those kinds of things. Our obsession with physical life blinds us to the spiritual reality that the Lord wants to introduce us to. Uh, Justin Buzzard, who's written a, a study that I've recommended and some of our groups are using as they go through, John, as well. Some of our small groups He says this, he says, according to John 3, salvation at its core is not mental assent to a new doctrine or a resolution to live differently. Salvation comes most fundamentally through the miracle of new birth, whereby our hearts are set free to put our trust in Jesus. One point I wish we'd emphasized a little bit more already this morning was that Nicodemus asked how questions of jesus and he's got some more how questions in the next passage that we're going to look at going forward instead of why questions and i when i'm talking with my kids about hey i want you to do this or we need this done around the house i can tell when they're bought in when they say to me how do you want me to do it as opposed to why do i gotta and i like how nicodemus asked jesus how not, why is this necessary? I've got enough going on. I'm doing okay. But that hole in his heart was, de- on dem- uh, was being demonstrated by the fact that he was like, how? How do we get there? How do, how do you help me with this? Learn to ask how questions of the Lord. How can I follow you? How can I be in lockstep with you? Take inventory of how often you ask the physical world, like through your own duty or through the comfort that it promises you. Take inventory of how often you ask the physical world to relieve or rescue you and take steps to trust the spirit of God. Find his healing grace. Find his power to resist those things. Trust the spirit of God to do only what only he can. Would you pray with me? Let's stand together. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for your word, and I thank you for John's faithful account of all that happened between nicodemus and the savior of the world i thank you lord for giving us time to um, see ourselves in this um, exchange and i pray lord that you would humble us but but lord most importantly rescue us by your grace one lesson isn't going to get us right on these things and one truth or a moment of conviction that we feel is not going to set our course correctly for the rest of our lives this will be a lesson on repeat for us And so I pray, Lord, you continue to show your grace. We love you, Lord, and we're so thankful, God, that you've given us salvation in your son. In Jesus' name, amen.